Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Before beginning the playback of this section of Archbishop Goodyear's writings on the Passion, I wanted to give a little preface and a sort of a warning or disclaimer of sorts. I must confess I found it very difficult to properly read this section, as there are so many deep mysteries conveyed and deep connections between what our Lord said previously in his public life and what he is saying here, and then of course the future realization of his words. I found it difficult to find the right modulation, the proper pauses, and in short, to properly convey what is written in these pages. If anyone finds it difficult to listen to this section or doesn't find much inspiration or sees it as very dry, I would not be surprised. I would think so myself. However, on reading the actual words, being able to do it at your own pace and to be able to let the words sink in as you read them, it is much easier to draw the connections to see the deeper meaning. So, if anyone finds it difficult or frustrating to listen to this section, I would still like to encourage you to read this chapter. It's the most beautiful explanation I have ever seen of the words of our Lord. There are so many connections, so much deep meaning in what is conveyed here. And I would not want the listener to miss out on this treasure of sacred scripture being interpreted and understood and the deeper meaning of these words of our Lord being brought out to us by one who has so much learning and deep understanding. This is, of course, true of all of these chapters, as it's usually easier to follow and much more light and understanding is conveyed to us when we actually read rather than listen. But in this chapter in particular, I wanted to convey that message for the benefit of all the listeners here. So without any more stalling or any more needless ramblings, we'll continue with the playback of this recording of Archbishop Goodyear. Chapter 5, Part 14, The Sacerdotal Prayer. These things Jesus spoke, and having lifted up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. Jesus had concluded his discourse on a note of peace and confidence. As soon as he had spoken his last words, the disciples saw come over him that expression of prayer which they had learnt to know so well. Peter, James, and John in particular had reason to recognize it, for he had drawn them to him in prayer more than all the rest, since they were to be his leaders and chief spokesmen. They were also to be his chief contemplatives, closest to him in the vision of the supernatural. His eyes and hands were lifted upwards. At once he was in another world. He saw what others did not see. He spoke to one who was present with him, though to the rest there was no more than this poor shadow of a world. The hour had come at last, and he must enter into it with his father's name upon his lips. 
during all these years on earth, how well he had foreseen it, and how steadily and unflinchingly, sometimes even eagerly, he had walked forward to meet it. It was the hour, no longer his own, of which he had spoken at Cana of Galilee, but theirs in the power of darkness. From the day of the temptation in the desert, when Satan had offered him the kingdom on his own terms, and those terms had been rejected, the battle of the kingdoms had gone on. Time after time it might have seemed to the onlooker, as it had seemed to the observant Judas, that he must in the end be worsted. When, for instance, he was ousted from his own Nazareth, when he was laughed to scorn in Capernaum, when Pharisees and Herodians and elders came together in Galilee, though nothing else could unite them to plot how they might put him to death, when he was compelled to wander abroad in exile and an outlaw in Syria and Decapolis, often in Jerusalem whenever he had come into the city, above all during these last months, since and including the Feast of Tabernacles, when he had retired for safety across the Jordan, when he had been driven to hide himself away in Ephraim, when he had not been able to spend a single night safely in the city. Again and again, in Galilee and in Judea, men had decided on his death. Proclamation had been made for his arrest. As we say, a price had been put on his head. Police had been sent to take him and yet he had always defied them. More than that, when occasion called for it, he had ignored them. Once, beyond the Jordan and Perea, in Herod's own dominions, when threatened with the Tetrarch's enmity, he had boldly said that he would lay down his life when he would, and not a minute sooner, no matter who might threaten him. He would die where he would, no matter what were the plots prepared against him. Once in the temple before the face of his enemies, in one of their bitterest moments, he had declared that he had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again, and none of them should interfere with that right. Often enough the mob had been roused to take up stones and do him to death as a blasphemer. Yet never a stone had touched him. During the last few days, here in the very heart of Jerusalem, he had single-handed turned the tables on his enemies, and made them afraid. But now the hour had come when it behooved him to surrender, that his work might be finally accomplished, that he might give to God and man manifest proof of the sacrificial love that consumed him, than which none could be greater. He must throw away his protecting shield. He must deliver himself, and let men do with him what they would. He must empty himself, made obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. Still, before he yielded, here in the supper room, where so much had already been given, he must give also to his own a witness for all generations to come that he did it of his own accord, that he laid down his life deliberately in keeping with his Father's will, not because man and Satan had beaten him at last. He was offered because he willed it. The twelve had often been with him when he prayed. Often he had urged them to pray whenever they were in need, when other powers failed them, when the harvest was ripe and there was no one to reap it. 
when faith was cold and required to be roused, when dangers threatened them, when they would express their love and confidence. Often he had taught them how to pray, by his own example, by a form of prayer that most became them as weak creatures of earth, as suppliant sinners, as simple children of God. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. But this, his own prayer, would be very different. On the Mount of the Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John had seen him in majesty, in prayer with Moses and Elias, had heard him declared by a voice from heaven, My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, at this crucial moment, they should all hear him speak to that Father, as he alone had a right to speak. Before he was made obedient unto death, before he obscured his Godhead, they should hear the prayer of the very Son of God, alone in all its magnificence. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. So began the sacerdotal prayer, the prayer of Jesus Christ, God and man, priest and victim, uttered at the moment of his solemn self-sacrifice. The supper is over, the Holy Eucharist has been given. In a few hours more, the last act of the oblation will have begun. Jesus Christ, priest and redeemer, stands between the two, as it were, concentrating on the purpose of his stupendous work, expressing that purpose for all the world to realize. He speaks with assurance, not as a pleading suppliant. He speaks of power and glory, not of forgiveness and protection. As one having authority, not as those who, when they have done the best that they can do, are still but useless servants. Though elsewhere, even in the narratives of St. John, he has acknowledged his soul to be troubled, and has asked his father to save him from that hour, here all is serene and sure and majestic. A little later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he will be found crushed beneath his load, and will pray that, if it be possible, the chalice may pass from him. But in the sacerdotal prayer, there is not a word of that. He has finished the work which his father has given him to do. He claims the reward of one who has redeemed the world. That reward must be shared by all his own, by all those who shall believe in him. He asks not in expectation only that he will be heard, not only by way of petition, but with the language of an equal to an equal, of a true son to a true father, knowing well that he does but put into the form of prayer the grace he has won and to which he has a claim. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he may give eternal life to all whom thou hast given him. He begins his prayer where John had begun his gospel. The word made flesh was the true life, the life that was the true light of men. Throughout the gospel, the words have been repeated again and again. John will continue to repeat them to the end in his epistles, and Paul and Peter will take them up. To them all, 
The coming of Jesus meant this for mankind, and almost this alone. His gift was not forgiveness only, a reconstruction. It was a new life, a recreation. The church which he founded was not an organization only, but an organism. A unity not of agreement or of combination only, but of very life. It was a rebirth. Its newness would come from within, not from without. As the new leaves come upon the vine. Connatural, even supernatural. It would be known by living more than by learning, founded on a knowledge which man of himself could never gain. Now this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, in him whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. With this introduction, the prayer divides itself into three parts. Jesus, the high priest of the new dispensation, prays first for himself, next for his apostles, his own, and last for his universal church, for all men who will acknowledge and receive him. He prays for himself, not as has just been said, by way of petition, but as an equal, speaking to an equal, as one who has fulfilled a command and claims a just return. It is the prayer of God to God, of the Son to the Father, the beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. And now glorify thou me, O Father, with thyself, with the glory which I had before the world was with thee. I have manifested thy name to the men whom thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and to me thou gavest them, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things which thou hast given me are from thee, because of the words which thou gavest me. I have given to them, and they have received them, and have known in very deed that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. We cannot hear delay on this part of the prayer. To others he had said that, when they had prayed, they should remember that they were but useless servants, even when they had done all that was in their power. They were to pray, Forgive us our trespasses. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, I have sinned before heaven and in thy sight. Of themselves they were to know that they could do nothing, even if they could do all things in him who strengthened them. With himself it was quite otherwise. He was the equal of the Father. He and the Father were one. His Father had given the Son a work to do, and the Son had done it, whatever its results might be. He had taught the world the fatherhood of God. He had taught it the relation between the Father and the Son, even with himself, Jesus Christ. He had taught it the union of the two, in and by the Holy Spirit. He had done his part, whatever man might do with his gift, whether he accepted it or not, the glory of God had been manifested. Let that glory now return to itself, and let it return through those whom thou hast given me, who have believed in me, who are mine. Thus does the first part of the prayer lead naturally to the second. Having prayed for himself with the majestic claim of an equal who has a right to his reward, and in language made bold by love. In that same spirit, he now prays for his own that were in the world, 
whom he had loved to the end. He prays for them apart from all others, and gives reasons. Because his Father had given them to him. Because in them, more than in any others, he and his Father are to be glorified. Because more than others, they are to bear the onsets and temptations of the world. Because to them, beyond others, he would give his own peace and joy. Because on their sanctification and their fidelity, so much would depend. Because to them, he had given the commission to go forth and teach. He appeals to his Father's essential holiness that they should be holy. He speaks of his own holiness as having been displayed chiefly because of them and for their sakes. When we read this prayer, and in its light look back on the choice and training of the twelve, culminating at this supper meeting, we realize two things. First, the nearness of the priest to the heart of Jesus Christ. And next, the great trust that heart has placed in him the tremendous power that has been given to him, upon the right use of which is to depend the life and sanctification of the world. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, because they are thine. All my things are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am not in the world, and these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, as we also are. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name. Those whom thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. They are not of the world, as I also am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for them also do I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thus, for his priests, as being part of his own reward, claimed for them because of his own merits, Jesus asks four special graces. And his claim is made the more appealing by arguments and even chosen words that love will particularly cherish. Thine they were, and to me thou hast given them. For those whom thou hast given me, I pray, because they are thine, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, whom thou hast given me. He asks first that they should be one, even as the Father and himself are one. Next, that they should have his joy filled in themselves. In other words, that even on his death, they should be the happiest of men. Third, that they should be kept from evil especially the evil contamination of the world. Fourth, that they should be sanctified in truth. They are all personal graces, graces that belong to each individual, apart altogether from his place or office in the church. He does not ask that they should be great apostles, great administers, doers of great things. He asks only that they should be holy and true 
sanctified in truth, in union with one another, joyful in their hearts, uncontaminated by the world in which they are compelled to live. And all this in union with the holiness, the oneness, the joy, the otherworldliness of the Father and the Son themselves. As such, he had himself been sent into the world. As such, he now sends them. He would have them go out, other Christs, whatever else they carried with them, by such means more than by any other, would his word be spread abroad. This brings him to the third division of his prayer. For them also who through their word shall believe in me, that is, for the faithful members of his church. He was about to give his life for them. He would have them know that he had prayed specifically for them at that solemn moment. He would give them for all time this infallible assurance that there was no temptation, no trial, which with his grace they would not be able to conquer. Nothing the Father might ask of them to do for him, but they could do it. And not for them only do I pray, but for them also who through their word shall believe in me. What is it that he asks of his Father for his universal church? We have seen that for his priests he has asked four things, one of which was that they may be one, as we also are. Now for his church he asks for this alone. He does not ask that his church should grow. He asks only that its members should be one. He does not ask that it should go forth and teach. He asks that its living unity manifested to all eyes should be a lasting proof that thou hast sent me, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This then, in his mind, was to be the first foundation of the apostolate, the living unity of the church, which nothing would avail to break, was of itself to be the chief means by which she would win the world to belief, to knowledge, and to love. And not for them only do I pray, but for them also who through their word shall believe in me, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one, as we also are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. In this prayer we are brought up against parallels which none, surely, but Jesus Christ our Lord himself, would have dared even to conceive. As thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that they may be one as we also are one, that thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This is more than simile or metaphor. It has left all figure of speech behind. It is more than allegory. The comparisons are too definite and real. It is far more than the mere extravagant language of love. Even if we could suppose either Jesus or St. John capable of such extravagance. It rings too true. It is too anxious that it should not be mistaken. It is too emphatically repeated to be the invention of any human writer or to come from any but a heart that is beyond extravagance. Jesus Christ our Lord means here 
every word he says. It is a positive teaching poured out in this last utterance from one who would once for all express his own ideal, pressed home upon a wondering hearer, spoken as the main thought that was in the mind and heart of Jesus Christ our Lord at this most crucial moment of his life, in the most sacred intercourse with his Father, in dealing with whom there was no room for hyperbole or extravagance of any kind. And yet the oneness among his own and of himself with his own, of which he speaks, is daringly compared with the oneness which exists between God the Father and God the Son. As thou and I are one. Two persons, yet one Godhead. Two persons, Jesus and myself. Yet one life, one body, even the body of Jesus Christ our Lord. We can all say it and claim the privilege Every true believer in, every faithful follower of Jesus Christ our Lord can claim it. Therefore in him, made members of his one same body, equal branches of one same vine, we are living members one of another. We are loved by the Father, even as Jesus Christ is loved, for we are his body, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. We are of the family of the Father, for we are co-heirs with Christ. We are raised to a dignity which gives a new meaning to life, a new significance to all creation. We are ennobled, and by that ennobling are compelled to live up to that honor, to make ourselves more noble. We understand better now why, earlier in his life, Jesus Christ put before his own that strange-sounding and seemingly impossible standard. Be you therefore perfect, as also your heavenly Father is perfect. Without Jesus it was impossible. It is not so now. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Without me you can do nothing. If you abide in me, in my words abide in you. You shall ask whatever you will and it shall be done unto you. Yes, in very deed, not in word or symbol only. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. With this description at the beginning of his gospel, John introduced the word of God into the world, and in the forty-five places in which he speaks of the life, its emphatic meaning is the same. The word of God lives with the life of God. He brings that life into this world, that man may have it and live by it in a real sense. In other words, that man may be reborn, recreated, made another creature from what he was before. As many as received him, he gave them power to be made sons of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hence, faith in Jesus Christ is more than a light of the understanding, more than knowledge. To St. John, it is more than an act of the will, more than acceptance of a supernatural truth. To him, it is a new life. He that believeth in the Son hath life everlasting. He that believeth in the Son of God hath the testimony of God in himself. And this is the testimony that God hath given us eternal life. And this life is in the Son, 
He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. These things I write to you, that you may know that you have eternal life, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And we know that the Son of God is come, and he hath given us understanding, that we may know the true God, and may be in his true Son. This is the true God and life eternal. These things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen, amen, I say unto you, that he who heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath life everlasting, and cometh not into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Nowhere is this understanding of faith as life more emphasized than in the great sixth chapter of his gospel, the promise of the Holy Eucharist. In the preceding chapter, our Lord had said, You will not come to me that you may have life. With that introduction pointing to the goal to be reached, we may follow the discourse as Jesus draws on his hearers, first to a general desire, then to a full realization of what he has come to give. When we read the promise in the light of the reality expressed in other parts of the gospel, the reality of the Holy Eucharist comes home to us with overwhelming force. We have but to remember that life to John is no metaphor, no figure of speech, but a real gift, a real addition, a recreation, a real rebirth, coming to us through and with and in Jesus Christ our Lord by the fact of his actual living in us, to grasp the full significance of the real thing that is also given in the eating of his body and the drinking of his blood. That he may make his meaning clear, according to his usual custom, Jesus begins at the very beginning using the language and the ideas of the people to whom he speaks. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which endureth unto life everlasting, which the Son of Man will give you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Thus far all is well. A little further on he does but repeat what we have already learnt, though in more figurative language preparing the way for what is yet to come. The bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. Nor does he state much more when he proceeds. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall not hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. And this is the will of God that sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up, on the last day. All this he sums up, giving it by his emphatic introduction the fullest and most real meaning. Amen, amen, I say to you, he that believeth in me hath everlasting life. By the living acceptance of faith in Jesus Christ, man receives a new life, other than that which he has as man. That life is nothing more nor less than Jesus Christ our Lord living in him. Jesus lives with the life of God himself. He has been sent down to earth that he may impart that life to men. Man accepts that life in baptism. By that, he is recreated, reborn. And as long as his faith is true, that new life in him does not die. But the love of God which has given that life is not content with what it has done. Since the living Christ is the life of our life, he must give us that living Christ more abundantly in every way that it is possible to give him. In one way is that of physical food. 
It is all in keeping not only with the constant emphasis of John, but with the method of God himself, and of Jesus himself, who will use an outward sign whenever he is able to convey the meaning of the inward grace that is given. With these two facts in mind, that we may be both true to him who spoke the words, and to him who has repeated them, we may easily follow our Lord in all that comes after. I am the bread of life. This he has said before, and there is as yet no reason why we should give the words a different meaning. Neither need we understand more in the explanation. This is the bread that cometh down from heaven, that if any man eat of it, he may not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. But now there comes an addition. I am the life. We can understand, I live now, not I, but Christ liveth in me, is man's response to and acceptance of that truth, not as a figure, but as a reality, however mystical it may appear. But as human life must be fed, that it may not perish, so the higher life within me must be fed. Thus far we have a simile, and thus far only. If we go further still and say that all is figurative, then we have a figure of a figure, and reality nowhere. But Jesus Christ our Lord has precisely guarded against this. He has kept the life vividly in the foreground. He has given us its origin and content. The living Christ within us is to be fed and fostered by the living Christ without us. Both of these are real, one as real as the other. If either is not, if one is figurative only, then the whole point and doctrine of St. John falls to the ground. The one supports and depends upon the other. Because Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, therefore I believe that in him I have eternal life. I have him living in me as the fire in the red-hot iron, as the sunlight in the air, as the sap of the vine that gives life to the branches. Because I have him living in me, therefore I believe that with his living body, when he says so, he feeds the life that is mine as the fire may be fed in the iron till the iron takes on a white heat, as the sunlight in the air may compel us guard our eyes, as the sap in the branch at springtime gives it a power which could in no way belong to common wood. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have known that Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Hence, with a wonderful blending of the two doctrines, the doctrine of sanctifying grace and the doctrine, as we now call it, of the Blessed Sacrament, Jesus goes on with his discourse. The bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, the same shall also live by me. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. Much more might be said, and indeed ought to be said, if we would fully understand, with all its consequences, the significance of the word life, as it is so repeatedly used by St. John. But we must return to the prayer. Jesus prays for those who believe in him. Those who believe in him already have everlasting life. 
Everlasting life is himself, actually living in them, in each one and in all. The same life which is himself living in them all, already, actually makes them one body, even though as individuals they remain distinct. Thus are they one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee. But if they are one because of the one Jesus Christ, then they are one in him. And since he and the Father are one, therefore they are one in him and the Father, one in us. But that oneness is something new to man. It is not in accordance with nature. It is supernatural, and all the more real on that account. And the fact that it exists and is manifest to everyone and is utterly inexplicable on any natural or human basis is the abiding proof above every other, as he repeats, of the fact of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the messenger of God to man. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. The prayer here contains a parenthesis. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we also are one. The glory of the Son of God, whatever that may mean. For I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive what God hath prepared for them that love him. The glory of the Son of God has been handed on to his faithful with the object of binding them yet more closely to one another, and of making their union yet more like the union between the Father and the Son. What this means, the Apostle explains in his epistle. Behold, what manner of charity the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called and should be the sons of God. Dearly beloved, we are now the sons of God, and it hath not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like to him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the glory that he has handed on to us, having given us the life of God. He has made us sons of God. Of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. There remains little more for Jesus to say. If this appears in the lives of his disciples, then the world will know well enough even though it may love darkness rather than the light, that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. <laughs>